We're talking pillars and chapiters and molten sea and hand breaths and brims and borders and oxen and shovels, labors, basins. But you guys wanted to go here, so that's where we're going. Let's ask God's blessing on this time. Lord, we do ask that you'd bless now the study of your word. We know, Lord, that you've included all these things in your word for our instruction. And Lord, we just see even to the, the detail that goes into uh, the temple that was built to honor you. And Lord, we just uh, know that even though it was done with uh, a desire to honor you, we know also, Lord, that the things that men build aren't lasting. And so, Lord, help us to keep an eternal perspective in all things. Lord, help us to lay up treasures in heaven instead of here on earth. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Please bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the first eight verses talk about... Well, I'm going to ask you, did you guys read the chapter? Yes. And I know I said I was just going to break it up into two studies, but I'm not just because I'm not. It's a lot, 51 verses. But sometimes the tedious chapters, you know, there's not much commentary that can be made other than to say, and I mentioned this last week, even as we began to look at this, you know, so much of this, first of all, is patterned after the tabernacle. And secondly, I made the point last week that God specifically had given David, in a sense, the blueprints for this particular temple as well. So these are things that are patterned by design, by the Holy Spirit that God has in mind. And there's significance in these things, significance in these things. And some of the significance is just simply their pattern after things that are found in heaven. When we get there, we say, oh, okay, yeah, now I recognize some of these things. And uh, so anyway, but the, the opening verses, chapter 7 close with again too just a of when Solomon began the work and the things that he'd gone through. In chapter um I'm sorry, chapter 6 ended that way. Chapter 7 begins by talking about Solomon's house. The end of chapter 6, it told us that Solomon had spent a total of seven and a half years building, his, uh, building the temple unto the Lord. And beginning in chapter 7, then it says, but Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. I don't know, you know, I, on the one hand, and I've heard teaching that is basically compared the amount of work that Solomon put into his own house versus the amount of work that he put into God's house. And somehow, in a sense, it's a commentary of where his priorities were. I, I mean, I suppose you could say that, but at the same time, I mean, seven and a half years and the amount of gold and the expense that was put into God's house. As we go on to read the description of Solomon's house here in the first eight verses, yeah, it's beautiful. And it's made out of cedar wood. But we don't see the amount of gold and precious metal that is being described in the previous chapter being mentioned here in chapter 7. I think, too, a point that could be made, and again, I suppose just a matter as to how you parse these things, you know, a point could be made, well, Solomon finished God's house first, and that was the priority. And again, too, the previous two chapters tell us how many 
thousands of men, tens of thousands of men were working in quarrying the stone, in bringing the timber, and doing all these different things. And, and no doubt, some of these things were also used for Solomon's house and also, too, for the house that he builds for his wife. A thought that kind of came to my mind with regards to this, and it, and it doesn't have to do with a comparison to the house that Solomon builds for himself, but it has to do with uh, just a question that I would raise regarding the house that already existed. And I'm not talking about the temple. I'm talking about David's palace. Why is it that Solomon even builds a palace or a house for himself when it's clear that all of this began as a result of his father David in his own palace looking and seeing the tent or the tabernacle of meeting and in a sense feeling like God had given him, established him as king, had given him this house that he was dwelling in. And I'm, I'm just kind of wondering why Solomon just doesn't take up residency in his father's house and in, in, in the palace that his father already has that's been built. I don't know, just a question for me. I'm going to read through the, you know, the next uh, seven verses, but I also want to bring up uh, another issue or two. But it's just a description. You know, it's a very you know, statistical in its description of its length and of the materials that are used. It says in verse 2 that he built also a house of the forest of Lebanon. The length thereof was 100 cubits. The breadth thereof, so 100 cubits would translate into about 150 feet. The width thereof is 50 cubits, so it's about 75 feet wide. The height thereof is 30 cubits, so that'd be about 45 feet high. And upon four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams upon the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above upon the beams that lay on the 45 pillars, 15 in a row. So there's three rows of 15. And it says, and there were windows in three rows and light against light in the three ranks. I actually like reading the NIV because it gives you probably a better visual picture, you know, a word picture of what it looks like. In verse 4, it says, And there were windows in three rows, and light was against light in three ranks. Verse 5, And all the doors and the posts were square with the windows, and light was against light in three ranks. And he made a porch of pillars, and the length thereof was 50 cubits, and the breadth thereof was 30 cubits. And the porch was before them, and on the other pillars, and the thick beams were before them. Verse 7, then he made a porch for the throne where he might judge. So his house serves, in a sense, a dual purpose, because it's not only the place that he lives, but it is a place from which he is going to deal judiciously with things that probably those in lower positions couldn't handle. It says, even the porch of the judgment, and it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other. And his house where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was of the like work. And Solomon made also a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife, like unto this porch. <laughs> this is, uh, so, you know, this description, and again, to probably just a, a picture probably in our mind would be, it really, you know, even though there's precious stones or stones that are used, everything is covered in cedar for Solomon's house. Everything, again, too, and it's situated, I believe, in the woods, 
And so there is, you know, probably blends in nicely with the woods, but, you know, something that was spectacular because it's 13 years in the building. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is verse 8, where, again, to is closing out the description of his house, and it speaks about these porches and this court that he has within the porch. And it says, Solomon made a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife, like unto this porch. Um, in the NIV, it says, in the palace in which he had lived, he set further back. It was similar in design. Solomon also made a palace like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had married. So they're not living under the same roof. Now, again, too, with Solomon, you know, you know, later on the scripture is going to tell us that he had concubines and wives, I think, in excess of, of 1,000. I think it was 1,100 altogether. But... You know, Pharaoh's daughter is his first wife, at least according to the scriptures. And again, too, something I find, I don't know, strange is that he's not living or his wife doesn't live under the same roof as him. Now, again, too, it's a matter of perspective. You could look at this and say, well, you know, he, he builds her a separate, separate house because maybe, in a sense, he wants to honor her. But another way of looking at it is he builds her a separate house because he doesn't want to dwell under the same roof as her. Or maybe because, again, too, she's an Egyptian and, and, and Solomon married her for political reasons. And again, too, is keeping up this appearance of marriage, but not necessarily really the spirit or the covenant of marriage that God intends in his word. Just some things to bring up. Verse 9, verses 9 through 12 then describe in a general sense not only the building materials that go into Solomon, Solomon's house, but Pharaoh's daughter's house as well, but also to into the temple. It says all of these were of costly stones according to the measure of hewed stones, hewn, hewed stones, sawed with saws, within and without, even from the foundation into the coping, so on the outside toward the great court. And the foundation was costly stones, even great stones, stones of 10 cubit and stones of 8 cubits. So 10 cubits. A cubit's basically about 18 inches. So a cubit, you know, 10 cubits would be the equivalent of 15 feet. Uh, stones of 8 cubits would be an equivalent of 12 feet. That doesn't sound like much, but we're talking tons. These stones would have weighed probably in the excess of probably 20 to 30 tons, just given the size of them. And they were also, too, when it says costly stones, they were the best. The, you know, the finest, probably limestone uh, quarried stones that were found, they were being used not only in, in the temple, but also, too, for Solomon's house. Verse 11, and it says, Above the costly stones, after the measure of huge stones and cedars, and the great court roundabout was with three rows of huge st stones, and a row of cedar beams, both for the inner court and for the house of the Lord and for the porch of the house. So one thing I want to mention at this point, and I've already kind of alluded to it, and it's just for as much as Solomon is, the effort that he's putting into this, I can't help that some of this is actually described in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes kind of this desire to find the meaning of all things or the meaning of life or to just find meaning in life. And 
beginning in chapter 2, he, he, or actually at the end of chapter 1, he actually begins kind of this. And he looks for, again, to fulfillment in different ways. He's looking for meaning in different ways. It's kind of a, a sad book, if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of, you know, written from the standpoint of somebody that has it all and has done it all, has tried it all, has experienced it all, and yet is still looking for something to fill his heart or to fill his life. And I'll just begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1. Because again, when, when we get to verses 4 through 6, I think some of the, the description of the things that Solomon is describing in Ecclesiastes falls in with what he has done here in building not only a temple to God, but building a, a home for himself. And, and there are other things that Solomon built as well. But it says in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1, I said in my heart, go to now and I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this is also this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what does it do? I'm paraphrasing. Verse three, I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom. <laughs> That's old King James was saying, Yeah, I'm looking for meaning in alcohol, and yet at the same time I'm just gonna be wise about this. I don't think so. And it says, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what that was good for the sons of men, what they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. Verse 4 now, he says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that brings forth trees. He's going to talk about the abundance of wealth that he has and the servants that he has. In verse 7, I, have, I got me servants and maidens, and I had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delight of the sons of men as musical instruments and, and that of all sorts, so that I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom re remained in with me. And whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withhold not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Verse 11, then, of Ecclesiastes 2, he says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no prophet under the sun. If you jump down to verse 17 of the same chapter, he says, Therefore, I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. I made this observation before. You know, Solomon actually has been left great wealth and possessions. His father laid up these things. We're going to see that mentioned at the end of the chapter. But Solomon's perspective is from a very self-centered, very selfish perspective. 
And I think when you're selfish or self-centered, it's very difficult to find any type of meaning, meaning or satisfaction, no matter how great the accomplishments are. And I think in some ways Solomon is looking to somehow be satisfied with the accomplishments. Maybe the building of his house and the greatness of it wasn't so much that, again, too, he's wanting it for personal or selfish reasons, but maybe, again, too, it's more for he's trying to find meaning in it. He's trying to think he could build something that would satisfy or would be established for the course of his life or that would never be destroyed. But the thing that he is disillusioned by is that he feels no matter how great a work he has accomplished, he has to leave it to somebody else. <laughs> I think, yeah, you leave it to your son, wouldn't you? Maybe not. Maybe, you know, he's thinking someone else would be king. But again, what would be wrong if you were actually laying up some type of, you know, great work that you passed on to the next generation? And I guess even as I say that, I think what greater thing that could be passed on to the next generation is not anything that we accomplish in the building, but our faith. You know, the sharing of the gospel, the passing on of our beliefs to the next generation, to our children, to the generation that follows. Hopefully, you know, our generation isn't the generation, if the Lord tarries, our generation isn't the, gener isn't the generation that doesn't pass its faith on to our kids. And that would be a good thing if our kids, if our kids had nothing else, if they, if they didn't receive any inheritance or anything else, but if they came to know what it was to love the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize Him as Savior and Messiah, then there's nothing better than that. I don't care how much you leave them or how great a work or, or a house that Solomon builds, nothing would be better than that. Just kind of my own side note or commentary. So getting back to our passage in 1 Kings chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Now we turn our focus back upon the temple. And it specifically then is going to focus on uh, a few other things that I've already mentioned. Um, but basically what Solomon is going to do is he's going to hire somebody Hiram is the guy's name. He's going to find somebody who's skilled to be able to do all the, the craftsmanship of the things that are either carved out of wood or that are made out of brass. And it says in verse 13 that King Solomon, one thing I will mention, this is a different Hiram than what was previously mentioned in chapter, I believe, 5. In chapter 5, Hiram is the king of Tyre. In chapter 7 here, this Hiram is basically a skilled craftsman. Solomon obviously has heard of him, is maybe familiar with his work, and he specifically recruits him to do the work in the temple. And it says in verse 13, the King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre a worker in brass, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all works in brass, and he came to King Solomon and wrought all his work. So Solomon's looking for someone who's skilled to be able to do this. He knows of this guy from Tyre. 
His father, in a sense, is a Gentile. His mother is, is Jewish. And as a result, Solomon, you know, wants him to, to do the work of all the craftsmanship that goes into it. it begins a description in verse 15 of these pillars that are going to be uh, made out of brass. It says that he cast two pillars of brass of 18 cubits high apiece. Again, you know, that's going to be 27 feet high, almost three stories. It says, and a line of 12 cubits did compass either of them about. He made two chapiters. Those are the, you know, you've seen pillars, and then you see the part that's like the, 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 the cap or the capital, I think, is what the word that's used in the NIV. But, you know, the, the ornate part upon which normally something would sit on the top of a pillar. That's anytime you see the word in the Old King James chapters, that's what it's talking about. And it says that he made them of molten brass. Let me get a drink of this. Verse 16, he made them of molten brass to set upon the top of the pillars. The height of the one chapter was five cubits, and the height of the other chapter was five cubits. And the nets of the checker work, and the wreaths of chain work for the chapters, which were on the top of the pillars, seven for the one chapter and seven for the other chapter. And he made the pillars and the two rows round about upon the one network to cover the chapters that were up upon the top with pomegranates. And so did he for the other chapter. And the other chapter that were on the top of the pillars were of lily work in the porch, four cubits. Again, you know, you can do the math, just multiply it by one point, one and a half. Verse 20, it says, And the chapters upon the two pillars had pomegranates also above and over against the belly, which was by the network, and the pomegranates were 200 in a row, round about upon the other chapter. Verse 21. And the interesting thing about these two pillars that are being you know, made in this description here is that they're set out in front of the temple, but the interesting thing is, is they're not supporting anything. They're just, in a sense, there as pillars. Whether they're decorative or whether really what's important is the names that Solomon names them. And in the next two verses, we see that. It says that he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple and he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jason, Jachin. And he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz. I believe Jachin is... Um, uh, he shall be established, and Boaz is in his strength. So I think it's a description, again, too, of just wanting to honor God, but again, to being established in God, being established in his strength. Verse 22, and it says, Upon the top of the pillars was lily work, so that the work of the pillars was finished. Verse 23 describes this big, huge it calls it in the Old King James a molten sea. Basically, it's a huge tub or basin. And I'll just read it. It says that he made a molten sea 10 cubits from the one brim to the other. So 15 feet across. This thing is huge. It holds 
thousands of gallons of water. I think it's estimated at around 11,000 gallons of water was what it was capable of, of you know, you, that, that you could put in. It was round all about and on his, and, and his height was five cubits, so it's seven and a half feet high. 15 feet wide. It says, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it round about. Verse 24, and under the brim of it round about there were knops or gourds compassing it. This, this is all decorative. 10 in a cubit passing the sea round about. The knop was cast in two rows when it was cast, and it stood upon 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. And the sea was set upon them with all their hinder parts inward. So no looking at the oxen's bottoms because they were all looking out that, out in each direction. And this huge basin was sitting there. Now, you know, one of the things that these basins were used were not only for cleansing the sacrifices, um, but I believe also, too, the priests would bathe in these as well because, again, before they could do their service, they had to be cleansed, and then they would put on their garments to, cleanse, uh, uh, to, to do the ministry in. Verse 26, it says, It was a handbreadth thick, and the, the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup with flowers of lilies. It contained 2,000 baths. Like I said, probably around 11,000 gallons. Verse 27, he made 10 bases of brass. And so now this is a description of these carts. And uh, not only here, but also too in um, Chronicles, it's going to describe the description of these things. These are going to be basically carts with basins that are going to be positioned on either side. And there's going to be five on each side. So it describes the intricacy of these things, their dimensions, and then how these, you know, bowls were placed inside these carts, or as, you know, it calls these in the Old King James bases. So in verse 27, he made 10 bases of brass, four cubits with the length of one base, and four cubits the breadth thereof, and three cubits the height of it. And the work of the bases was on this manner. They had borders, and the borders were between the ledges, and on the borders that were between the ledges were lions, oxen, and cherubims. And upon the ledges there was a base above, beneath the lions and the oxen were certain additions made of thin work. Verse 30, and every base had four brazen wheels, and the plates of brass and the four corners thereof had undersetters under the labor where the undersetters molten at the side of every addition. And the mouth of it within the chapter and above with was a cubit, but the mouth thereof was round about after the work of the base, a cubit and a half, and also upon the mouth of it were gravings with their borders, four square, not round. And under the borders were four wheels, and the axle trees of the wheel were joined to the base, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. Verse 33. So again, until you're getting this description of this cart, it has axles, it has wheels. You know, these 
basins are going to, or these carts are going to basically have, like I said, basins of water in them as well, but they need to be able to be carted to where they're needed. Verse 33, and the work of the wheels was like the work of a chariot wheel. Their axle trees and their naves and their fellows and their spokes were all molten. Speaking of molten brass, they were cast in solid brass. And it says, and there were four undersetters to the four corners of one base, and the undersetters were of the very base itself. Verse 35, and in the top of the base was there a round compass of half a cubit high, and atop of the base the ledges thereof and the borders thereof were of the same. For on the plates of the ledges thereof and on the borders thereof he graved cherubims, lions, and palm trees according to the proportion of every one and additions round about. After this manner he made the ten bases, all of them had one casting, one measure, and one size. We're almost done, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 38. <laughs> Actually, I'm reading. I should look up to see if you guys are still awake. I don't know who it was that told me one time that they used to play. We used to record our messages on CD. It might have been the Wetters, or maybe it was the Husteddies, but they would play my CDs for their kids at night, and the kids would fall asleep listening to me. So I'll look up. It's probably no different now. No. Verse 38. You know, one thing I will, I'll make a comment on this. Don't you feel like you're getting, in a sense, some spiritual vegetables here? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read through the Bible, I read through it all. I don't jump past things. Because again, too, sometimes it's just there's, there's maybe one little thing that catches my attention, some spiritual truth or something I connect with or think about, and all of a sudden it becomes valuable. So again, too, there are little details that are here, but there may be something that, again, too, the Lord uses to speak to you. Maybe it's just, again, to, uh, you know, talking about the 12 oxen. You know, maybe one oxen or one ox represents each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The fact that this thing is sitting upon there is resting upon them. I mean, all these little different details, but again, too, even so, you know, the scripture speaks, and Jesus says this, that he comes in the volume of the book, and all these things have meaning to them. You see things. One of the things you'll see, too, is that all these things that are being used um, outside the Holy of Holies are all made of brass. Everything is made out of brass, and it's something that speaks of judgment. The stuff that was made out of gold and cast of gold, again, too, I think is supposed to be a picture of the heavenlies, but the things that are made out of brass speak of, of, of the judgment, speak of, again, too, the things that were necessary to atone for sins. And again, all this stuff, the, the significance of it is, is that these things are going to be used in ministry. They're, Solomon finds the best craftsman that he can use because, again, too, these things are going to be used in ministry. They're cast out of the best materials because, again, too, it's something that should be lasting. I mean, for me, too, I always, when it comes to things, my wife knows this about me, I would rather spend a little bit extra money and get something that's quality and something that's lasting than try to save a few dollars and kind of get what you pay for. 
And I see when it comes to the things that are dedicated to the, the house of the Lord, to the service of the Lord, um, there's great detail, there's great effort, and there are great ma building materials that are used. And I think when it comes right down to it, God does deserve our best, no matter what we do. Kind of, I think it was on Sunday when we were looking in um, Colossians chapter 3 that everything we do, let it be wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. You know, not skimping, but giving God our best, the best of our time, the best of our talents, the best uh, materials that can be used when serving the Lord. So, picking up where we left off in verse 38, it says, Then made he ten labors of brass. So these are the, uh, the, 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 the lavers that are going to sit inside these carts that just have previously been described. It says one laver, laver contained 40 baths and every laver was four cubits upon every one of the ten bases one laver or this huge bowl. Verse 39, and he put the five bases on the right side of the house and the five on the left side of the house and he set the sea on the right side and of the house eastward over against the south. Verse 40, and now it's going to just generally describe everything. <laughs> Again, if you wanted to skip the whole chapter, you could probably just read verses 40 to 46. It says that Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the basins. So Hiram made an end of doing all the work that he made King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars and the two bowls of the chapters that were on the top of the two pillars, and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the chapters which were on top of the, of the pillars, verse 42, and 400 pomegranates for the two networks, even two rows of pomegranates for one network to cover the two bowls of the chapters that were upon the pillars, verse 43, and the ten bases and the ten lavers on the bases, and the one sea, and the twelve oxen under the sea, and the pots, and the shovels, and the basins, and all these vessels which Hiram made to King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of bright brass, probably might even say bronze, but it says, in the plain of Jordan did he cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarthan. So what he was doing is, is he would do all the work in clay and then pour the molten metal into these, these clay molds and then that's how he was uh, basically forming all the, these different things that have been described. So verse 47, Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because they were exceeding many, neither was the weight of the brass found out and Solomon made all the vessels that pertain to the house of the Lord the altar of gold and the table of gold whereupon the showbread was and the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left before the oracle or the holy of holies with the flowers and the lamps and the tongues of gold and the bowls and the snuffers and the basins and the spoons and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold both for the doors of the inner house and the most holy place and for the doors of the house to wit of the temple. So was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord and Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated even the silver and the gold and the vessels did he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. It's a huge 
project lasting only as long as God's people were obedient and to keep the commands of God. And it isn't long before, and Solomon's even guilty by the end of his life. With the wives that he has, he begins to offer sacrifice to some of these false gods. And it's just a matter of time before all the work is going to be destroyed because of Solomon's, not only because of Solomon's sin, but because of the sin of the people. So again, for me, it's probably more of a lesson of, you know, building something that lasts. The things that last are eternal, are spiritual. Those are the things that are important. The things that are carnal or temporal in nature are selfish. Those are the things that don't last. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, even as uh, maybe we're thinking on it, that there are some truths, Lord, that you're speaking to the hearts of your people from this chapter. Lord, we love you. Lord, give us a hunger, Lord, to, to build things that are lasting and eternal, Lord. We thank you for this time, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.